Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each month we're delving a little deeper into some of the conversations being had in our community, learning more about exciting innovations and probing some of the issues we're facing. In this month's bumper special episode, we are talking to Carl Wilding, the Chief Executive of the National Council for Voluntary Organisations, about his first year in the role. And we'll be chatting to the poet Holly McNish about her work with Homestart in a slightly different edition of our coronavirus care package. That's all to come. But first... Previously on Third Sector... It's January. It's the longest January in living memory. It's the longest January that's ever occurred. It is quite extraordinary. We're not even out of it yet. And I remember coming back into the office on January 3rd and it was like World War Three was trending. Yeah. Australia's on fire. Australia's completely on fire. On yep. fire. Australia, no more Australia, no more koalas. We've had uh, fractions in the royal house. Labour leadership contest. Yeah, need a new Labour leader. That's not even going to be decided until March. So we're not even a third of the way through that whole process yet. Allegedly, the Saudi crown prince has hacked Jeff Bezos in some really recent weird news. Yeah. Probably wanted like a really nice Amazon deal. And uh, and, and finally, we've got the uh, this fun virus, um, yeah. which is, is spreading from China. So um, that's, yeah so, yeah. so that's where we're up to. <sighs> oh my poor sweet sweet summer children <laughs> you know i could actually remember sitting in the studio to record this and thinking should i even mention this virus because i don't want people to think that i'm fear-mongering and now here we are in fact rebecca for our listeners could you just describe what you're looking at right now what i'm looking at is Emily, or the top, kind of the bottom two thirds of Emily's face um, on, on her screen. And then uh, she's kind of swathed in a crown or like a cloak of blanket draped across <laughs> her head with headphones recording into her phone, because that's how we record the podcast now. But yeah, she's like some kind of like mysterious nun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> coming from the future with a terrible, terrible message for those uh, much younger and far more stable people recording in January 2020. I just, you know, I can't believe that we were talking about Jeff Bezos getting his Amazon account hacked like it was a newsworthy thing. We were face to face. We were looking at each other. And with we, guests. Yeah, with guests, with people we don't live with. We, we went for lunch after this was recorded. We left the studio and we went to a crowded noodle bar where my elbows were basically on some stranger's table, almost in their soup. And we probably hugged Anushka, our producer at the time. We, we hugged people. And then at some point around that time, I booked a trip to the Netherlands in March and a trip to Barcelona in April, um, being like, yeah, it's fine. There's this virus, but that's in Italy, which is miles away from Spain. It'll be fine. I was six months away from my wedding. Mm-hmm. My, my June wedding, my midsummer wedding, I went home. I was worrying about whether I wanted duck egg napkins or dove grey napkins. <laughs> and it, oh my goodness. I mean, I, we all know this year has turned things upside down, but this particular audio blast from the past, I just, oh, I feel like I'm realising all over again that we were in a completely different place at the beginning of this year. It is just extraordinary. And before we do anything else on this episode, I want to say to anybody who's listening, this year is nearly 
over. We are so, so nearly there and everybody just deserves a massive rest. We do, we do. So, you know, pour yourself a cup of tea or something stronger. It's the Christmas edition. Normally we drink babies in the studio. Yes, we do. We normally have all kinds of, again, it's a Christmas like no other Christmas, but this is our final festive episode of the year. So do settle in, relax and reflect on what a long way we've come since January this year. Carl Wilding has been Chief Executive of the NCVO since September last year. He has worked at the Umbrella Body since 1998 and succeeded Sir Stuart Etherington as Chief Executive when he retired after 25 years in role. No one could have predicted the direction the past year would take and, like many third sector organisations, NCVO has not made it out of the pandemic unscathed. The body is currently undergoing a restructure that will reduce the number of directors from three to two and lead to the likely loss of 22 of the organisation's 107 roles. So Rebecca sat down with Carl to chat about his reflections on the past year, on where the sector is at the moment and how he hopes 2021 will pan out. So, Carl, thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's not been the year that anybody predicted. So what do you think have been the biggest challenges for you as Chief Executive of the NCVO? First, Rebecca, thanks for uh, uh, for hosting. It, it's really good uh, to have a conversation with you. Um, you're right, it's not been the year that any of us predicted, has it? Anyone, not just in the sector, but but externally. I think our challenges at NCVO and, uh, and I guess therefore mine as Chief Executive have been very similar faced by our members. So we've obviously we've had an external shock in in the form of the COVID pandemic and the challenge there being the need to respond to the crisis phase of the pandemic by completely changing not only our priorities to respond to what people needed, but also changing how we work. I mean, shifting from from an organisation uh, of 100 or so people where everyone comes into the office every day to one where almost overnight uh, uh, we are all... Uh, not all, but but many of us have been working at home. That's been challenging. Clearly, um, again, like our members and the sector out there as a whole, there's been a huge challenge in terms of the financial model that we operate on and and the hit that uh, COVID uh, has delivered to our financial model. So normal trading activities, conferences, all uh, those sorts of things, they have either been impossible as a result of lockdown or social distancing rules have have fundamentally sort of changed them and, and sort of made them extremely difficult. So you can probably talk to any number of chief execs in the sector at the minute who will say, hey, uh, our uh, our online events are brilliant. We're getting five times as many people as, uh, as we were before. But uh, what's the business model uh, behind the new ways of working where your events are on Zoom uh, and so on? It's a real challenge there in, in terms of financial models for all of us. I mean, the um, none of us are out of the woods yet on that one. You know, we've, I mean, who knows how long it's going to be before we can start to do events and community fundraising and so on together as a, as a sector again. And then um, a big challenge for for us and again for 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 our members, I think this year has been about trying to plan for the future. And the fact that we are we are having to change the size and the focus of our organisation, so that we can live within our means and and become a COVID resilient organisation in in the future. I'm a I'm very much of the view that the virus is here to stay, um, so we've got to try and find a way of working with it whilst it's sort of going to be alongside us for the foreseeable future. 
coming to your question about challenge for me and for us that's been an incredibly sad challenge on a personal level because it means that we have made people redundant at NCVO and no leader wants to be someone who um is is in charge of a process where people are lead are leaving your organization through a redundancy process and in our case you know I mean brilliant leaders uh, uh, in our sector who are leaving and and that's a sort of a huge challenge so sort of wrapping all that up I guess you know, I mean the challenge that that everyone is facing right now in in the middle of December, right across the sector is that whether your leaders, trustees, staff, everyone is very very tired. I mean that is the constant feedback I am getting from everyone. People are weary. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. And and the response to the pandemic, it seems to me, or the response to these challenges, has been marked by this kind of unprecedented level of collaboration among umbrella organizations i don't know if, if that's looked the same from where you're sitting but i've certainly never heard it, it or never seen it come to fruition quite as as clearly as it has done in in recent months do you think that that's something that can be preserved beyond the pandemic and i appreciate what you're saying about the pandemic's going to be here to stay for a long time anyway but do you think that can be preserved into the future well, first of all, I think those unprecedented levels of collaboration, I don't think that's just infrastructure organisations, first of all. I actually think that's across sectors as well. You know, When you've got um, van hire rental firms coming to you saying, uh, what can we do? We've got vans that no one's hiring and, and we want to put those to socially useful uh, uh, things. When... Um, even sort of now, you know, if you if you open the newspaper today, you have a, a national fast food company uh, that operates at a global scale saying, "Hey, during the crisis, we're okay actually, but we want to we want you to visit some of our rivals who are the small businesses on the high street." Yeah, there's, there's there's something very different about about the nature of collaboration in society where we all recognise that that actually the only way we're going to get through this as a society is by coming together and, and helping each other. So. The, what you call the unprecedented collaboration between umbrella bodies, I, I think that's just reflective of a broader trend. I think the other thing I would say about the collaboration is that it didn't start with COVID. It started before. Not that anyone would sort of see this and not that it's necessarily important, but um, but we were starting to come together before COVID, albeit not as many of us, but we were starting conversations about how do we work together. And I think that's because we all have a recognition, especially those of us who are membership organisations, that our members expect us to work together in their interests. It's coined phrase, um, uh, they are not our members, we are their membership bodies. I, I think it's incumbent upon us to work together and I think everyone gets that. So regardless of any sort of individual, in terms of sort of this collaboration, whoever the chief execs holding the baton at this point in time happen to be, I think the collaboration is going to continue because I think it has to. I think the world's changed. We're in a world now of new power and networks where networks are much more important than they were a generation ago. So I, I think because of those wider trends, I think it's going to carry on. So the challenge for us is how do we make sure that we preserve that? How do you sort of embed the culture? How do you embed the working methods? How do you make sure that these relationships are not just personal and individual, but they are organisational and that they span different sort of levels in sort of the uh, uh, the hierarchies that we have as organisations? So some of that's about codifying relationships and, and writing down ways of working. Some of it, I think, is about celebrating it. Some of it is about recognising that, especially as membership organisations, there is actually an awful lot that, that we can and should collaborate about, and it's not just about campaigning. The most visible sort of things that people see over the last 
sort of nine months is 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 probably the, that sort of campaigning type stuff that we do. But actually, for me, going forward, some of the much more important things that we should do in terms of collaboration actually is about how we support our members. It's about the services that we deliver, the practical support. And the reason that I say that is because there is never going to be enough capacity building resource to go around. There's never going to be enough practical support to go around. So I think it's more important than ever that we are clear about the different roles we play, trying not to sort of duplicate each other if if that duplication is 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 wasteful. And then sort of collaborating on things like um, making sure that we have a clear understanding of what user need is and actually what works when it comes to delivering services to members because we we all want to deliver the best possible practical support to people yeah okay and i mean i totally hear what you're saying about that the the collaboration goes beyond the campaigning but obviously i think one of the kind of the biggest sort of public facing all the kind of the thing that is more most visible from the outside is some of the campaigning around sort of never more needed is that getting the kind of cut through that it could do with the public? Does it need to be getting that kind of cut through? And, and you know, does, do we need to be doing more with it? I mean, sort of what strikes me is is what's cutting through to the public is that in a time of crisis is that people need help and support and that um, and that people are responding. And I think they're I think they're recognising that it's not that charities are never more needed, but it's the work of charities uh, and volunteers that's never more needed. And that's always been the emphasis of 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 our campaign and what we've said it's if you go back to the sort of the very beginning when we were asking for financial support from government it it, it wasn't because we said that we have some sort of divine right to exist and to continue but people do have a right to the services that organizations provide because many of them are providing statutory services or they're doing things that that in previous years the state may have done and that is where there is a responsibility that is what is sort of never more needed so if you start from the position that it's the services that are important it's less important that we focus on this idea that the sector has to get recognized i think that's probably not the right way to look at it what's important is that people need services and that, and that and that they uh, have a right and 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 deserve those services so i think the public i think the public do recognize that that we're doing things and and you look at especially some of the most visible things in people's lives where they where they can really sort of connect and relate to the things that our sector does so you know in the idea that you might not have a meal at the end of the day so people have have gone the extra mile in terms of supporting food banks the idea that we ourselves might be lonely and on our own so these acts of neighborliness and, and kindness that, that that we've seen i i, I think sort of people are recognizing uh, that i would argue to you that what has cut through is are, are the things that charities and volunteers are doing I think our local news, our national news, it, it's hard to pick up a paper these days where you cannot see what people are doing to support good causes in their community. And for me, that's what's important that cuts through is almost the idea, the concept that actually doing something in your community is part of being a citizen. So the challenge for us as organisations is to then sort of make that logical link so that we can sort of make the case that um, we are there and we are helping mobilise and organise 
the good things that people want to do in their community. And the conversations that we've got to have a lot of the time are about the fact that when people want to make a difference, they can do it, they can make a difference on their own, but they can make a much bigger difference when they're part of something bigger and they're organized and, and they and they get support in the form of whether it's training or safeguarding and so on. So in that sense, that the sort of the charity layer, it is critical. And I, and I think we've still probably got a bit more work to do in explaining why sort of that, that role in organizing and mobilizing is 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 needed as well as the good work of individuals that makes a lot of sense um but uh, the government's response to the pandemic has been very widely criticized as far as charities are concerned um so the, the the support that's been available for charities and ncvo has historically perhaps had a reputation for taking quite a strategic approach when working with government working alongside it taking what kind of some people would think of as sort of inside track rather than vocally criticizing it is that still your approach and is that going to be a useful str- or has that been a useful strategy in 2020? So you're right. Um, people have been critical uh, at, at times of, of government and I think they've been rightly critical at, at times of government. At the very beginning, we said that um, uh, that because of the, what the sector does in terms of providing services um, uh, uh, to the public and, and, and supporting them through the crisis, it would need support that would be swift. Uh, simple and substantial and it's a mixed record uh, uh, in terms of what they've done and I think we have to I think what we have to make sure that we do as a sector is balance our balance the times when government gets it wrong and and, you know we all get things wrong but including government government has not sat on its hands with regard to the sector it has provided support and it has listened but it's not always got things right, and and I think where sometimes we probably uh, need to we need to think we need to shape our critique of government at times a bit more is 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 recognizing that that government has had to respond massively at pace in the middle of a crisis when they have got some of the similar challenges that we have in terms of like staff working from home and and, and so on. But coming back to your question, Rebecca, about you know what's you mean does NCVO take a strategic approach? Well, I'd like to think that we're always going to be strategic uh, uh, in our approach uh, uh, to working with government. Um, but the strategy will change according to the times that, that you live and, and, and work in. And and as you've sort of pointed out, sometimes what's effective in terms of uh, uh, influencing uh, is taking more of an insider approach. Sometimes it's about being sort of more on the outside and then the reality, I think, that we all recognise is that it's a blend, isn't it? And that you will pick your moments when you want to take an outsider approach. But when you are working sort of in sort of more influencing mode, I think I think where we are thinking about how we evolve our approach is as a membership organisation, how do we work much more closely with our members and using the access and the influence and the privilege that we have from being a national membership body to bring them with us and, and, and use our platform, if that's the right, or our access to put them to the front. I think if I'm being honest, probably most ministers and civil servants, they probably don't want to hear from national umbrella body uh, bodies, what they actually want to hear are voices from the front line who have got the real lived experience of how policy is impacting upon what they do. So for me, I think what it means is that is that at times we will challenge government, if for no other reason that, that we need to challenge government, because I, I know many people still feel frustrated that government is actually missing out on huge opportunities by not working with our sector and not recognising the solutions that, that, that volunteering and that charities often bring. 
At other times, I think that's going to be about us informing uh, uh, government, letting them know about the problems that you don't always know about when you're based in Whitehall. So for us, that's about being a better national organisation with strong links to all of our members. And, you know, government needs that informing. I think the Secretary of State the other day uh, in his speech uh, at the launch of the Pro Bono Economics Law Family uh, uh, Commission on, on the Future of Civil Society, I think he said that government acknowledges that it doesn't always have the strategic understanding of our sector that it needs and it doesn't always understand our contribution. So we've got to do more to sort of fix that because I, I, I would recognise that. The other thing that I would say is in, in terms of a strategic approach to sort of government is that we've got to make sure that we've got answers and solutions to sort of these problems that are faced by society. I generally have the view that people who uh, either become sort of officials or get elected to government, they, t they tend to want to do those roles because they want to make the world a better place. And, and they're looking for solutions just as much as we are. So um, we've got to make sure, a bit like uh, Nadidi uh, Casey said the other day, that we've got to... Um, We've got to get better at communicating hope and offering hope. I would agree with that. But the twin sister of hope is answers uh, and, and solutions. So um, I'm a great believer in, the, in that old phrase that the best critique is a better solution. So yes, we should absolutely hand out uh, criticism when it's needed, but we've then got to follow that up with ideas about how to do things differently and better. So you mentioned their uh, sort of uh, members, your members and kind of giving the, your members more of a platform and their voices being heard. How are you tackling issues around diversity, power and privilege, both within NCVO and through its position in the sector? Well, I hope that we're tackling these issues with determination, uh, with humility uh, and with a recognition that we ourselves have got a lot to learn. And indeed, we have a lot to change. I think um, the trustees and the senior leadership at NCVO would also acknowledge that it's it's our staff from across the organisation, from the bottom upwards, who actually have been the driving force behind tackling these issues internally and indeed externally. When you know, when you see some of the blogs that have appeared on the NCVO website, so they are the people that I I sort of want to acknowledge and indeed celebrate as, as sort of driving some of this stuff. We've done some practical changes in, in terms of this agenda. So on um, on equity, diversity, inclusion, the board have now set up their own subcommittee um, with our new structure to deliver our strategy. We're putting in place um, a new people, governance and culture team because we're going to take much more interest and pay much more attention to uh, uh, to cultural change in, in the organisation. And then just some sort of like quite practical things that, that maybe aren't as widespread as you would think in the sector. So as we've been making changes to our workforce um, and, and uh, we're going through a redundancy process, we spent a lot of time on an equality impact assessment uh, to make sure that we can sort of take uh, uh, good quality decisions. I mean, there are wider things that we need to do as well. It's not just about human resources. It's about thinking about our membership, about policy development. So the, the, I think the point that I'm sort of trying to say here is that the conversations that we're having internally is that how can we not just do quick wins? How can we not just do things that are really simple, um, but but probably are only change at sort of surface level? And instead, how can we undertake that deep and lasting cultural uh, uh, change? And again, I, I want to emphasise that that lots of the learning here and 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 lots of of the drive this is coming from from NCVO staff who have got lived experience of oppression 
uh, uh, and discrimination. That makes a lot of sense. And it does just seem to me that at the same time the sector is facing kind of the, the massive challenge of the pandemic, we've also seen organisations having to think about getting their own houses in order. You know, we've had a number of high profile allegations of bullying, institutional racism. How should the sector be balancing these two issues, the kind of COVID crisis on one hand and the need for massive soul searching on the other? Yeah, well, these aren't either or issues, aren't they, Rebecca? I mean, COVID, for example, I think has sparked huge concerns about mental health, uh, uh, not just in in voluntary sector, but in the public sector as well. So if you've got these challenges already in your organisation, if if you have sort of these internal issues, I mean, COVID is sort of going to widen the cracks, isn't it? And, and they're going to become a problem. So you have to deal with them uh, together. I guess ultimately what we've got to do is that we've got to make sure that we're operating based on ethical principles, which is something NCBO has, has argued for for some time. There's no point surviving the COVID sort of crisis and, and being financially intact if you do so at the expense of not taking care of uh, of how you treat your staff and, and, and ensuring that you're living your values. Brilliant. Um, so just as a final question before we wrap up, um, if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that making predictions for the future is a risky business. Although, as we've said, perhaps we should have we should have known that some of this was coming. Uh, but I'm going to ask you to do it all the same. So what are your predictions for 2021, both for NCVO and for the wider sector? I think it's probably better, actually, Rebecca, to think in terms of risks uh, and, and opportunities rather than predictions. So clearly... Uh, you know, what happens in terms of sort of COVID and how long social distancing rules are going to last for is 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 a really big thing for most charities, and, and that will have a material impact on on their future because you know that when the vi- well, sorry when the vaccine is available and 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 we can return to sort of more normal sort of ways of fundraising and, and working, that's going to have a big impact on our financial models. So you know, I mean, is that the summer? Is it earlier? Yeah, that, that's a key issue. Likewise, uh, Brexit and, and and what's happen happening in the next couple of weeks, um, and the potential risk to supply chains in the future. So, I mean, even if it's just as simple as as you're an organisation that um, that makes meals for people, what's going to happen to the the sort of uh, uh, the supply chain? I think is important. Another big sort of milestone in the next year is the end of March, um, and I point to that because that's when the furlough scheme ends. So what happens then to the wider economy um, and unemployment and, and what will that do in terms of confidence? Because you know, if confidence in the wider economy takes a dip, I think that will, that will sort of have an impact. But I want to be optimistic about 2021 and, and to conclude and sort of say, I think what we've seen from 2020 and COVID is that people care about the world around them and they care about others. So what, what I think we probably can predict is that people still want to sort of do things that help others and and it's our challenge in the future to make sure that we are there to sort of turn and mobilize and and, and organize that that goodwill and that desire to help others and, and turn that into impact each month we put together a coronavirus care package of good news and this month we thought we would bring you something a little different after one campaign in particular caught our eye So the charity Homestart, which is a community network of trained volunteers and experts who help families with young children through challenging times, is working with the poet Holly McNish. She's donating 50% of the profits from her poem, You Don't Need a Chimney, to Homestart, as she agreed to chat to me about this uplifting and distinctly Christmassy campaign. Hi, Holly. Thanks very much for joining us. I should note that I'm uh, having to record you over the phone at the moment, so it might be that the audio quality is not as high as it would be in the studio 
Uh, so I hope our listeners will forgive us for that. Um, I was wondering if you could kick us off by uh, reading out the poem that you've written for Homestart. Yeah, of course I can. So it's a poem basically inspired by Homestart and that I wrote for my daughter. And it's called, You Do Not Need a Chimney for Santa Claus to Come. You do not need a chimney for Santa Claus to come. You do not need a fireplace to hang your stocking from. That stuff is just from telly. Do not believe the film. You do not need a great big house for Santa to come in. He's got a sleigh, for goodness sake, and loads of elves at hand. Mrs. Claus behind the scenes, computing all the plans. Flying, glowing reindeer, galloping the Christmas air. Of course, he can manage a few quick flights upstairs. The top flat of a tower block, the barge on a canal, a spare room in a friend's house, a hostel, a hotel. So snuggle in to sleep now, and don't listen to anyone who says you need a chimney for Santa Claus to come. Oh, thank you so much. And so, yeah, so what inspired the poem? It was two things, I guess. So I've got a daughter who's 10 now, um, and we basically lived in a flat when she was little and then live in a terrace house with her now. And every year at Christmas, she basically worries about Santa Claus getting in. Mm. <laughs> Not worried about him getting in, but worried about how he'd, how he'd get in, basically. And I sort of realised that all of our ideas of, Christmas or her ideas were based on this very wealthy US film industry, mm. basically. Um, and then about five years ago, I discovered Homestart when I was a newish parent, I guess. And I was looking at all the work they did. So it's a kind of mix of trying to ease my daughter's worry about uh, the, the myth of Christmas and the story of Christmas and how this shopping or present would be delivered and then also just thinking about this idea of home and how I guess television and media kind of portrays especially around Christmas this idea of home as having to be this certain type of family normally married heterosexual couple and um, in a massive house with a big fireplace and so many decorations and um, but actually that there are kids all over all over the world all over the UK in terms of home start work who are in various different types of housing some mm. unstable mm. some very small some spare rooms in friends houses um, and I didn't I don't know I, I write a lot of poems but I didn't there didn't seem to be that many kind of Christmassy ones written for kids who live in different places and I thought I spoke this about a lot of kids films and books that is not there's not that much diversity of kind of wealth, I guess, in a lot of them. So, um, yeah, it was a it was a, a combination of that. And I, I I love Christmas. I really love it. I'm quite obsessed <laughs> with it. And um, and I love the story of Santa Claus. I know not everybody <laughs> everybody <laughs> does, but I love I love the idea that there's this story about every kid getting one gift or one stocking. And I think we've sort of messed it up. Like rich parents buy. 50 gifts and say that they're all from Santa Claus as if they're richer kids are like nicer than poor kids mm. basically uh, and I think it could be so lovely I just think we need to diversify it a little bit. No that makes a lot of sense um so tell us about the campaign with Homestart what does it involve and, and how are you are you using the poem to raise money for Homestart? So the the campaign is give a little love campaign which they're doing um in partnership with Fair Share which is a food um, charity, 
people get access to the food that they need and also with Sean Lewis and Waitrose. So they're encouraging people basically to donate a little bit of love at Christmas and give a little bit of kindness, which I really like that it's not all about products or merchandise to sell. Um, and just about giving either your time if you've got it, um, which I guess personally as a mother in in lockdown at the moment trying to juggle everything i didn't feel like i had as much time to volunteer um but yeah time or money basically to try to to share to share the wealth especially well all year round but especially now um and i think in terms of homestart the reason i like it as a charity okay i discovered them five years ago when i i won a, a poetry award where you got given five thousand pounds basically as an award and i wanted to donate some of that to a charity and as a new parent i really like the fact that their campaign and their outlook encourages volunteers to basically help families with with whatever it's mm. not um it's not like prescribed what it is that you need as a family or what it is that you'd be struggling with so it could be blankets for a new baby or essential items when you come home from the hospital but it also could just be time or just making dinner or you know whatever you need and I think that for me that's the most important I remember being a new parent and thinking but I don't I don't want this gift I just want you to cook me dinner or mm. to hold the baby there's like a thousand different things that that families struggle with and I, I just like the fact that it's concentrated on kind of helping somebody to create home and to help them in the way that that they need oh brilliant um and so in terms of in terms of raising money there's a kind of um a printout people can buy of the poem that kids can color in and decorate um that's sort of selling on etsy isn't there is there any other way that the poem's sort of generating income so that's it at the moment it was a very kind of quick idea because i saw this give a little love campaign and i thought ah, i want to do something um to help basically so i got in touch with the artist brian Zick um who i love her art and um discovered her basically she was one of the first people that i saw drawing mermaids and fairies with with brown skin basically which was always a struggle to find when my daughter was little and um and yeah we created basically a, a print out that you can put up on your kids wall and um, to get from etsy or the pdf download which is it's hopefully something that we'll just carry on doing every year and kind of acknowledging that kids do like poetry, but maybe not. <laughs> not <that> much. <laughs> like I'm not gonna fool myself as a poet that all kids love poetry. Um, so basically, we wanted to create something. I guess this sounds a bit blunt, mm. that kids could feel better reading, especially mm. kids that do not live in a house with a big fireplace and stuff, but that they could also do an activity that would maybe keep them quiet <laughs> for their parents or for their teachers, basically. So, yeah, I wanted to make something that parents could actually use or teachers could use. So, so it's a PDF and it's £6 um, and 50% of the proceeds go to home, so I'm 50% to the artist. But it's it's something that they can print out so if teachers want to use it or people working in in any sort of youth organisation can just pay for the PDF and then use it however much and whatever in whatever way they want, basically. Uh, brilliant. And we'll pop the link to the Etsy page in the show notes as well so that people can download that. Great. I've heard it takes a while to colour in, so just... Uh... <laughs> 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 Which 
we tried to make it quite intricate. Brilliant. So, yeah, that's that's a good, solid Christmas activity while people are stuck inside at the moment. That sounds pretty perfect. I think so, yeah. I was quite grateful for any sort of activity that, yeah, made me feel like I was educating my child a bit, but also made it quiet. Brilliant. So we've talked a little bit about what it is uh, you hope for the project, but I just wondered if there was anything else you wanted to add. I don't think so. Just that, just to thank everybody that's downloaded it. It's been the the download has been really successful actually, and we weren't sure if people would want to do a simple colour and in sheet, but that's been really nice. So hopefully, something that we'll do each Christmas and and carry on and home start can gain from it. And that is it for us this year. So long, farewell 2020 podcasts. This has been a real experience. I'm tired. Rebecca is tired. Everyone is tired. Normally at the end of an episode, we thank our listeners during the sign off. And I just want to take this moment to say that we really do mean it. I had a Christmas card email uh, from someone in the sector saying thank you for the work we've been doing. And it did actually move me to tears. Um, it's been such a tough year for the sector and for everyone in it so thank you so much to our listeners and to our readers for taking the time out to read our work to listen to it to let us pick your brains and for letting us know when we've got it right it really does mean a lot you're doing an amazing job and we've still got such a tough road ahead of us but we are going to get there I really could not agree more with Rebecca. It is our absolute privilege, and I mean that on behalf of everyone at Third Sector, to be able to work with all of you. We could not ask for a better audience. We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. We will see you again in the new year. And until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you so much to our guests, Carl Wilding and Holly McNish, and to our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. And however you are celebrating this festive season, we hope you are safe. We hope you are happy and well. And we will see you all again in the new year. Merry, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. <laughs>